Our family was not paid well, but there were a lot of perks to such a position. One with all the fruits and vegetables that you got in the summertime, uh, fresh meat in the wintertime, sausages. I learned to visit families the day after they'd killed hogs. And, of course, there was a lot of game that uh, they killed and shared with the preacher's family. And even where we lived, the Rappahannock River was close, and they, they caught a lot of fish and shared that, too. So we, we really got a lot of benefits in that regard as a pastor of a rural church. But in order to engage the people in conversation, which was mostly about the weather and gardening and farming, you had to plant a garden. Now... I like planting a garden. I really do. It's just keeping it up that I don't like. And I didn't do a real good job at that. I remember one time a parishioner came by, and at the end of the conversation, I said to him, wait, let me go get you some tomatoes. And I went out in this weedy area off to the side of my lawn, and he grinned as I brought him back a couple of tomatoes and he said, you must be a true man of God because I have never seen anyone go in a weed patch and come back with tomatoes before. <laughs> so as we hear this story today from Jesus, from Matthew on the wheat growing with the thistles of the weeds, I, I know whereof I speak on this one. It's interesting to me that after Jesus told this parable, which seemed so simple and self-evident, the disciples, when the crowd had dispersed, came to him and said, what did that mean? And he explained it to them again. It seems self-evident that the truths here are just glaring to me. And especially as I read it and thought about our sharing together, there are a couple of things I I wanted to make sure you understood. One is, and I think the central truth of this parable is, that God is the ultimate judge. God is the one who does the judging, not us. And yet, how often in Christian circles it seems that people want to talk about judgment an awful lot. Especially if they can do the judging and can tell people who's going to make it to heaven and who's going to make it to hell. And they're sure they're not going to be on this side. I remember when I was in seminary, preaching class, one of the assignments to everybody in the class was to preach in some public place. The professor would assign you if you didn't do it. You could preach out on the streets. Now, I never had the nerve to do that. I think it probably would have been helpful to do that. But there were other public places that you could go to. And on one occasion, the story is that there were two people who later became pretty famous in Texas Baptist life. One of them, in fact, is on television. And if I called his name, you would know who he was, who he is. But they were assigned to preach in a prison, and it was a large prison with a lot of cell blocks and a lot of services going on at the same time because they separated the prisoners. So they drove together to the prison, and after they had preached their sermons, were driving back home. And Ed looked over at James, and he said, I tell you what, I really gave it to him today. I told them that they were in jail because they'd done what was wrong and they were sinners. 
And that God was going to curse them. And if they thought they were in bad shape now in prison behind bars, you just wait until you see the fires of hell. James drove down the road a little ways and he said, well, what happened? And Ed said, well, a couple of them came forward and gave their life to Christ. said, but several of them ran over into a corner and sort of cowered in fear. He seemed sort of proud of it. James rolled on down the road a little bit in silence, and Ed looked at him and says, What'd you preach on? James said, Well, I'll tell you, I I just told him that uh, we were all sinners and God loved us. There was a long silence in the car as they drove by, and finally Ed turned to James and said, What happened? James says, Well, A lot of them wept. In some ways, that is the dichotomy of the gospel. There are those who seem to always be railing. And this is the favorite pose right here. Like your mama and like the school teacher. Always judging. And there are times, my friends, when we need Someone to judge us. Your mama and your school teacher sometimes did this because you needed it. There are times we need to be told and disciplined and, and, and urged, perhaps even punished. But no one should do it with a smile on their face. It should never be done with a sense of joy or a, a piousness pompousness, as if I've got it made and I'm not going to be judged, but buddy, you watch out. Double, double. And I suppose all of us have heard the railings of the church from time to time in person or on TV or radio where people are giving you this and seem, seem to enjoy doing it with a smile on their face. Fact of the matter is, I think we preachers are almost pushed into doing that from time to time. Because we meet you at the door after we've had a pretty stern sermon. And you say to us, boy, that was a good one. You really preached today. You did a good one. As if somehow in judging we hit it on the mark. But when we preach about grace, we've missed it. So the parable is very clear here. The work of judgment is the work of God. It's not us. It's not our job. And I don't know about you folks, but when I have been convicted of my sin by God, he does a pretty good job. He knows how to do it. And he has indicated to me through the messages of Jesus over and over again, in particular in this passage, that he is the judge and I am not. He is the ultimate judge in life. And I'm glad that that's true. After all, God knows me a whole lot better than you do. God knows you a whole lot better than I do. He knows what goes on behind closed doors. He knows what goes on up here and in here. He knows you better than anyone else. And so I'm glad that God is the one who is the final arbiter of my life. He is the ultimate judge. And I use the word ultimate judge I have several times Because all of us have to make judgments in life. 
I mean, that's just a part of life, deciding what's good and what's best, what's fair and what's just, we, deciding whether something is righteous or not, whether it's moral, immoral, ethical. All of us have to make those kind of decisions. In fact, Jesus wants us to. We have to make choices about life. But we often recognize that when we make those choices, uh, we have a choice about our life, but we don't have choices about making those kinds of distinctions for others. God is the ultimate judge of us. Now, the second point is more pastoral, if you will, and that is that the focus on this passage is very clear that the thistles, the weeds, are not our fault. Now, for those of us who are good people trying to gather in this place, oftentimes we, we hurt so much for those people around us who are living in the thistles, who are the thistles, that we feel like we're responsible for what, if we'd just done better, if we'd done more, if we'd said the right thing, that, that they wouldn't be thistles, that they, somehow they would change, we could change them. We feel that somehow we are responsible for them being thistles. But ultimately, we have to fix ourselves, folks. Ultimately, we are responsible to everyone, but we're not responsible for everyone. That's not semantics. We're responsible to everyone just as we are responsible, as all of God's children are responsible to each other. But I am not responsible for your thistles. Only people can be fixed are the people who want to be fixed by the grace of God. I remember uh, when revivals were the thing. and We had an annual revival. You remember those days, don't you? Probably. Many of you do. And I invited... Uh, an acquaintance from seminary to come and preach at this revival and he came and did a good job first time good preacher next day but no one came forward during the first service no one changed their membership or gave their life to Christ or whatever so the second day uh, he came and of course one of the great things about revivals and I think that it extended the life of revival beyond after they were culturally pretty impotent was that you had to they fed the preacher they fed the preacher and the evangelist these ladies would cook meals they would rotate on Monday Miss so and so would get Tuesday and they'd get together and figure out what and one's going to serve fried chicken always a favorite fried chicken roast beef right on down. I mean, they would lay out a spread, and it, they would try to outdo each other. And, I mean, you got fed real well that week. You'd go from place to place. You'd go and eat all that food, and then you'd waddle to church to preach. You never heard a sermon on gluttony during a revival. I, I think there's connection there somehow. Anyway, this went to the second night to, to eat at this lady's house, and uh, the visiting evangelist uh, said he wasn't going to eat. He said, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll pass. And we were concerned about that. And when we got out uh, after dinner, I asked him, I said, you okay? You're sick? He said, no, I'm fine. I've just made a vow to God that I would not eat solid food until someone had made a decision during the revival. 
Well, he preached that night and nobody made a decision. Preached the next night, nobody made a decision. Four nights, no decision. Four nights, he didn't eat. Ladies were puzzled because he had asked me to be silent about this. He wasn't going to promote it. He wasn't going to tell anybody. He just made a vow to fast until someone made a profession of faith in, in the church while he's preaching. Four nights. And, I, you know, they say the angels of God are happy when a sinner comes to conversion. Well, I want to tell you, when a young girl made her profession of faith on that fifth night, I was so happy because I had become embarrassed. These poor ladies were knocking them out with fried chicken and roast beef, and he wasn't eating, and, and it was just embarrassing. Now, I, thought, I remember that because thinking, you know, he thought he was doing a pious act, a noble act. And maybe it was, I don't know, but it seemed to be rather arrogant and pompous to me to think that by his not eating, someone's eternal destiny would be changed. It was as if he felt like he could make People do what he wanted them to do. Folks, the sad thing is that you and I can't fix people. We can't save people. No matter how much we may want to. Those of us who are parents know the, know the crushing feeling when we see our children or our grandchildren moving towards the cliff. Moving towards danger. Those of us who are teachers know how distressing it is when we see our students fail, even though we give them their best. Medical people know how difficult it is to see bodies go into atrophy or head towards death or even die, despite their medical care. Friends, oh, to have a friend, your best friend, and see him walk into trouble and know that he's going to get hurt or she's going to get hurt and they they do it anyway and a pastor to see parishioners moving in directions that look oh it's just obvious that they're destructive and you want to help and we will pray and we will plead and we will cajole and we will bribe we will work harder We will stay late at night. We will put our hands around ourselves and twist and turn in agony. It will be difficult for us to see loved ones, people we really love, can I say this, who have turned to thistles, to weeds, and know that there's nothing we can humanly do. It's one of the most agonizing experiences in life, isn't it? Because we've all been there. To live and see the weed around us and to want to change it and know we can't. And I guess many of you and many of us, I'll put myself in that category, often carry guilt around, unnecessary guilt, because those whom we love and care for move in directions that we feel like are destructive. But we shouldn't feel guilty. We can be sad. It's only natural for us to be sad and distressed. But we must not feel guilty. The scripture tells us that we are not responsible for the thistles and the weeds. They are sown by the evil one.
just to sort of end the sermon, let's remember that God is the ultimate judge, not us. He will be the one who makes choices about justice, about fairness, about punishment and reward. And he will know how to do that quite well. When I was working in the coal fields as a state missionary, we had a lot of mission vacation Bible schools, and the home mission board would send us college students during the summer to help us with those. On one occasion, we had a neat little girl out from Alabama, Mississippi, I've forgotten which, and she was helping with Bible school, and she uh, led the children in what, what we call spatter painting. Maybe you remember this. There's a construct, piece of colored construction paper, and you put a leaf on it, and then spatter, usually with the toothbrush or something, little paint droppings on it, and then you pull the leaf off, and there's an image of the leaf on the construction paper. It's really neat. It's a simple little thing to, talk, to teach children about grace. And they could send it home. Well, as we were driving home one day, she showed us some of the spatter paintings that she had done. And I noticed immediately the the typical three-leaf poison ivy that she had spatter painted. She didn't know what it looked like. But she suffered for a week after that with the poison. She was highly allergic to it. Well, I tell that story to let you know that God doesn't make that kind of mistake. He knows the wheat and he knows the weed. He will do the judging and he will do it accurately, not the way you and I will do it. He will do it accurately. And he will do it with grace and goodness. And I'm convinced because I know the face of Jesus as you do, that if there's an error, it will be on the error of grace. And so God will be the judge. He will be the final and ultimate arbiter of life. It is not our job to do that, and it is best for us to refrain from doing that. It is not our job to judge. It is our job to thank God for his grace and be an able witness to that grace so that others hearing that might follow in his way. The wheat and the weed, the grain and the thistle, It is a parable for us today. Shall we pray? We don't like to think about justice, O Lord, or judgment, because we recognize that there's enough in our life, even that we know, that we can be judged. But we also know the grace of Jesus Christ, and we thank you for that. We recognize that we need not fear, we need not tremble, because Christ has forgiven us, and he has empowered us to be his children. Forgive us, our Father, and when we make attempts to judge other people, let us rather recognize that that is your your prerogative. Make us mindful, our Father, that there are things that go on in each other's lives that we have no business judging. Help us, our fathers, we look towards those whom we love, who live in the weeds, those who are engaged in destructive behavior, to love them, not judge them, to care for them, to pray for them, to witness to them, to share the grace of Jesus with them. 
but always to know that ultimately we are all responsible for our own lives. Again, thank you for Christ and for his marvelous and abundant grace towards us. We ask this in his name. Amen.